Congregation, our sermon text this evening shall be Psalm 11, the whole psalm. Psalm 11. And while you look it up, let me remind you this is not human literature, but God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string To shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think most of us here this evening would agree that we are currently living in a rather unstable and tumultuous period of time in younger history. The last two years, or so have been dominated both by a little virus called COVID-19. I'm sure you're as tired as I am from even hearing the name. But not only by this virus, but also by a concentrated assault on Judeo-Christian values in the West from outside, but sadly also from inside of the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you add to all that the war in Europe and the economic and social challenges that we are facing here in the U.S., then you have a situation that is capable of putting some considerable pressure on Christians in this country. A situation that could just feel too much for some to take. And when I'm coming around and speaking with Christians, there sadly is a very negative tenor of their assessment of our current place in history. It seems like everything is falling apart, is it not? The human author of our psalm, King David was in a similar situation. 
And I say similar with some caution because his situation was far more serious than ours is today. He wrote this Psalm 11 under serious and massive distress. It is not entirely clear in which situation he was. Scholars are not unified whether it was at the time when he was pursued by Saul or whether it was during the time when his own son tried to rebel against him and overthrow him. And for centuries, commentators have debated this issue with a lot of back and forth, with a lot of discussion, heated discussion, which is good. Because we should try to understand the word of God as good as we possibly can. And yet, we must say without becoming too sloppy or too cavalier in our interpretation of scripture, that in this case, it doesn't really matter which of the two crises David was in at the time, because the message remains the same. It changes nothing as to what this text is preaching to us this evening. But here is what we do know. David here is under severe distress, which is clear from the wording of the psalm. His life is in danger, and it is not clear whom he can trust anymore. In verse 2, his close friends and advisors describe the severity of the situation with these words. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Now this describes a truly troublesome situation. It describes danger looming from all sides. And it speaks about these threats as coming from or in the dark. Which basically means these threats are hidden in the sense that David doesn't know who to trust anymore. It could be anyone who suddenly turns against him. And my dear friends, this is surely distress of the worst kind. When you do not even know whether you can trust your closest friends and allies anymore. In verse 3, David continues to quote his advisors concerning the magnitude and the severity of the threat as they are saying to him, apparently repeatedly, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But dear friends, this is not just a general lament as we hear it all the time. Oh, what has happened to America? Oh, the good old days. Oh, how bad it has become. This general lament we know. But this describes something far more severe. This describes the collapse of a whole social order. The absolute crumbling of the whole social system. It talks about the subversion of justice. Right is suddenly wrong, and wrong is considered right. It seems like evil prevails on all directions, on all accounts. And the victory of the wicked seems certain. In other words, it seems to David and to his advisors 
humanly speaking at least, that all, and I mean all, including their life, is lost. It's all over. There is no hope, humanly speaking. And I'm asking you now, if you forget the severity for a moment, does this sound familiar to you? Because this is what I hear all the time. What is happening to this country? What is happening to this culture? What is happening to the West? It seems like everything is crashing down. Everything is crumbling. Everything is falling apart. Oh, woe is us. This is a situation for David that is very, very desperate. A situation in which the whole world seems to have conspired against him. A situation that looks utterly hopeless. It is like the one described by the psalmist Asaph. In similar words in Psalm 82 verse 5. Where it says they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. It's all crumbling. It is all falling apart. And this is the kind of situation that is closing in on David. The whole world is against him. He doesn't know who to trust anymore. Everything's falling apart. And when I read this and when I think about this, I cannot help, since I was just in Germany last week, I cannot help but think of Martin Luther. Yeah, the one of a mighty fortress. The German reformer. We often talk about him as if he was one of many and he was in the group of reformers, but he was a very early reformer. And when scripture by God's grace opened up to him and he understood the gospel, he literally stood alone. The whole world was turned against him. And I ask myself, how in the world did he do it? How do you do it? I mean, it's one thing if we today stand against all this woke folly and all this BLM madness and all this neo-Marxism, but we are together. Your pastor and I are together. There's many others who stand with us. But Luke Luther stood alone. And the whole world, including the church, told him, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong. You will burn in hell. How did he do it? I don't know. How can you resist those temptations? He did not have a library with thousands of commentaries that uh, agreed with him. Well, he could go back to Augustine maybe and find some support there, but he stood alone there in Wittenberg. How did he do it? This is kind of the situation that David is in. And there is a great, great temptation for David, as there was for Luther. The temptation to just run. To just check out. To just say, you know what, I'm not doing this. 
Nobody's helping me. Nobody's supporting me. I just go and be done with it. This temptation to run away from problems and challenges is even stronger since even his closest advisor friends push him to do so because it is them who give him the advice of verses 1, 2, and 3 to flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bends the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And then the conclusion, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is this pessimism that is like acid in the soul. This constant talking down of the circumstances as if God was ever helpless. As if God was ever not in control of all circumstances. Do you see what David's advisors are doing here? I think they're committing treason of the worst kind. They are utterly discouraging their king. They are trying to get him to abandon his God-giving calling as a king and run away from the problems, to fly away like a bird. What is a bird? What does a bird do? If you walk through the forest and there is a bird and you make one step that makes one sound, the bird is scared to death and he flies away, just away, doesn't know initially where he's going, just away and finds himself on the mountain. Far above of all problems. This is what David's advisors want David to do. To fly away like a bird. This is a very, very problematic mindset. In this, David, David's advisors are just like many in the church of Jesus Christ today. I call them the yes, come soon, Lord Jesus, and rapture me out crowd. I hear it all the time. Oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. And then they think they're very pious. But they're committing the sin of treason. Because they're running away from the battle. And then they dare to discourage their ministers. They dare to discourage their elders to also run away from the battle. To also commit the sin of treason against God and against his people. Pessimists. Naysayers. Cowards. Those who keep demoralizing the army of Christ. Who keep calling for retreat of the church when there is time to attack. To fight. And to stand strong and to receive the victory. Those who are ignoring the Great Commission. Those who do not want to face the battle but prefer to run. Those who have chosen cowardice and retreat as their strategy. Instead of fighting and being set on victory. And here is another problem. Because not only do they not want to face any challenges, 
but they also seek to discourage others in order for themselves not to feel so bad about their own cowardice and distrust in God. And they will try to reel you in into their constant pessimistic defeatism. But here is how it sounds. Pastor, be wise. Pastor, be winsome. I have always loved these words. Wise and winsome. But in the last few years, I have learned to hate them with a passion because they have been refilled with a different purpose. When God speaks of wisdom, He speaks of obedience. If God speaks of winsomeness, He speaks of reason, of using the mind for the glory of God and our behavior for the glory of our Lord. But when these people speak about being wise and being winsome, you could very well fill in, instead of both words, coward. Be a coward. Behave yourself like a coward. This way you live better. This way, reverend, your paycheck will keep coming and you can continue to live in your parsonage. I say to hell with the paycheck. To hell with the personage. Glory be to Christ. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abided still. His kingdom is forever. This is how Luther did it. Not by cowardice or wanting to be liked or being comforted all the time. Not by being afraid of a paycheck. Take everything. Take everything from me. But not Christ and his victory. The church of Jesus Christ in the West for a large part has utilized the victim mentality. Which is defined and I quote. There's a definition for it. It has become so popular. It's being defined as an acquired personality trait in which a person tends to recognize or consider themselves a victim of the negative actions of others and to behave as if this were the case in the face of even contrary evidence of such circumstances. End of quote. This is what we have become. The Church of Jesus Christ in the West, a bunch of whiners, pessimists, unwilling to fight. We are now at the point when our wives are more brave than we men are. And that is God's way of showing us men our shame and our cowardice. See, on the one hand, we as Reformed proclaim that Christ rules. That is the only possible message of Ascension Day, which we had last Thursday. I look around, I follow what preachers preach. I want to know what's going on, especially in our federation. Oh, Christ rules. Christ was enthroned. This is Christ's enthronement, the Ascension. Uh, we, we speak and we talk a big game, but we live as if Satan would rule. As if Satan ascended. As if Satan ruled the whole universe. 
If the foundations are destroyed, they say, what can the righteous do? In other words, it's all gone. What do you want to do? Be wise. Run. Run with us. My dear friends, in my personal opinion, the greatest scourges of the 21st century church in the West are first worldliness and secondly, a defeatist victim mentality. Defeatist. Such were David's advisors. They had forgotten David's calling. God appointed him as the king. They had forgotten or abandoned that. They had forgotten the power and the promises of God. And they have turned into cowards. And now they want to turn David into a coward as well. And they tell David to run away from problems and challenges instead of trusting God and facing the battle. Such was David's temptation. Brought on by those who should have been his greatest supporters, cheerleaders, encouragers, and fellow warriors. My dear friends, I ask you this evening, with friends like this, who needs enemies anymore? You see, when I'm saying this, I want to cry. Because this is what we as ministers experience now. We experience hardly any pressure to fight. We experience pressure to, to retreat. And I thank God for your pastor. He's not the kind of guy who retreats. And I urge you to keep praying for him. Because there are battles ahead that will be no fun. But nevertheless, they will have to be fought. The situation for David and for the kingdom here does look gloomy indeed. We don't want to minimize that. The threat is real and the danger is realistic. And yet, in texts like Revelation 21, we read what God thinks of defeatist cowardice. Where Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. This is clearly language of the covenant of grace. These are the ones who are in the covenant of grace. Those who hold out. Those who keep fighting. Those who keep following their great general. But then it continues. But. And the word but is a strong adversarial conjunction. Here comes the but. This is the opposite now. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. My dear friends, I've only realized this a few years ago. And here's what I realized. We talk a big game against homosexuality and all kinds of sexual aberrations, and rightly so. But here's what we miss. There's a sin that is mentioned first, far before sexual immorality, and we hardly ever speak about this sin, and that is cowardice. We do not hold each other accountable when it comes to cowardice. David understands 
what a great sin cowardice is. And he will have none of it. Listen to the strong and utterly defiant answer he gives to his advisors in verse 1. He makes it clear in the very first few words. In the Lord I take refuge. This is David's premise. This is what he wants to make clear right away. I'm not going to fly to any mountain. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to search for some cave to hide myself. I will hide myself in the Lord and I will stay put. I will not give up an inch of what the Lord has promised to me. This is David's premise. And then he goes on the attack against his own advisors, basically accusing them of a lack of faith and even of dereliction of duty. How can you say to my soul, he says, how dare you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? He says, how dare you give me such crappy advice? How dare you tempt me to sin against the living and true God? How dare you call yourself the elders of Israel and be such defeatist cowards? David here strongly rejects the advice of his friends and he states his own strategy. In the Lord, I take refuge. He calls him Jehovah or Yahweh. The covenant instituting and covenant keeping God who never fails his children. The faithful one of Israel, in whom we can trust at all times, who will never leave us nor forsake us. If this God decides that I will die, so be it, but in him I take refuge, in Jehovah and in nobody else. Such is the nature of David's mindset. And he's very consistent. For example, in texts like Psalm 16, verse 1, he says the same thing to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, my dear friend. What or who is your refuge? Is it your house? Is it your family? Is it your 401k or your cottage on the lake? Or is the Lord your refuge? What remains in your heart when everything else is gone? Ask the brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. What remains when everything else is gone? Will you be bitter against God? Then you were nothing but an idolater. Or will you still say, in the Lord I take refuge? And then David turns to answer the question of all questions in this psalm. The question of verse 3, where they say or where they ask, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That is the question before us in this psalm. And now God's anointed king answers. The one who is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His answer is as good for us today as he was for the Israelites about 3,000 years ago. And David puts all the problems, all the threats, all the pressure, all his enemies' attempts to harm him into perspective once as for all as he sings his doxology to the power, justice, and faithfulness of the living and true God. He says the Lord is in his holy temple. He does not refer to the temple in Jerusalem. Because if you read on, you will clearly see that he speaks of heaven. When he says the Lord's throne is in heaven. He's referring to a very important question in situations like this. It is the question, and he puts it before his advisors. I ask you, advisors, who rules? Who rules? Is it man? Is it my enemies? Is it even Satan or is it God? And he says it is God. He sits in his temple in heaven and he rules all things, even the bow of my enemies. Don't look around, he says. Look up. God rules. You just be quick to obey him. And leave the consequences up to him who rules all consequences. And we are reminded of texts like Psalm 2. I think that is my most quoted text in the past few years. When people come and whine and complain about the new world order. And about COVID. And about this and about Bill Gates. And about all these crooks around the world. And Soros and Schwab. I don't care. Because Psalm 2 puts it into perspective. When it asks, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, it says. Right in the first verse, they plot all right, but they all plot in vain. Who was ever able to rule the whole world? Help me out here. Was it Habsburg? Was it the Romans? Was it the Greeks? Was it the Assyrians? Who was ever able to rule the whole world? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. And this is what we see. What they're saying. We, say, we see it in academia. We see it in the judiciary. We see it in politics. We see it everywhere as they're saying, let us burst their bombs. Apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us throw off Christianity. Let us throw off the God of Christianity. That was, by the way, the premise of the so-called Enlightenment. Which began officially in 1789 with the attack on the Bastille in Paris. That was their premise. They said, men step out of the dependency of God that you yourself have caused. And this movement has continued to saturate our society. A society that has become even more rebellious. Let us throw off their bonds. Cast away their cords from us. And then comes God's answer in verse 4. And I want you to never ever forget this. When you're desperate, when in despair, when it seems like all is lost. Verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. 
Why don't we? Why do we cry? Why do we tremble? Why do we huddle together and shiver like little lambs in the cold? When the one who sits in the heavens laughs, it is a joke for him. It's like a one-year-old shaking his little fist against, I don't know, the best wrestler out there. How cute. How cute, Klaus Schwab. How cute, Bill Gates. How cute, all you self-important revolutionaries who want to take over power. Are you insane? You will not succeed by definition because they plot in vain, says our God. He who sits in the heavens laughs and he shall hold them in derision, it says. My dear friends, that is God's perspective of all that is going on around us. Let them burn down buildings. Let them yell into our faces because they think they're right. Let them protest and intimidate. The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. They're clowns. They are ridiculous clowns. And they will not succeed. Ever. As we continue in our Psalm 11. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. Why is David saying this? Well he was just talking about. That he's being attacked in the darkness. That he doesn't know who his enemy is. And who his friend is. And he says I don't have to know. God knows all things. His eyelids see. He sees all things. And he knows whose friend and whose enemy. And he will deal with them in his proper timing. Nothing is out of control. God sees all things. And God rules all things at all times. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You see, when it comes to us, hardship is testing. And when it says testing, it means it is contributing to our sanctification. Suffering and hardship are means of God in order to sanctify us. It never happens in heaven that uh, God sees you suffering or you lost a loved one or you went through a crisis or through a loss that you had never, never, ever imagined could ever happen to you. And your impulse wants to be, where is God? Why did he do that? Because through these things he sanctifies us. We might not understand the whole thing here on earth, but one day we will see. And we will praise him. So all the hardship is good for us. I know this is easily said. It's far harder to live through. And we all had our share or will have our share of severe hardship. That simply is part of the Christian life. If you don't believe me, read Hebrews chapter 12. You don't need me to explain it to you. It's very clear. For us, hardship is a blessing. For David, this situation is a blessing, although it looks like a curse. For the unbeliever, hardship is just destructive. Hardship is just what they had coming. There is no deeper meaning for them. It is God dealing with his enemies. 
You see, our time, our age has no concept for suffering, and sadly the church doesn't. As soon as suffering comes, we say, mitigate, mitigate, mitigate. Away with it. Instead of receiving hardship also in faith or by faith, out of the hand of our loving God. And then it continues, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. Now he continues to deal with those who are enemies of God, enemies of God's people, and he says they will be dealt with. And he uses even language of the uh, destruction uh, in Genesis of Sodom. Fire and sulfur and the scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. But you don't worry about them. I'll deal with them. My dear friends, this is David's answer to threats, to defeatism, to fear, and to cowardice. And this must also be our answer. This is the perspective that we also must have. And this brings me to the by far most important part here this evening. Rest assured, it's a brief part. And that is that David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody, nobody was ever more threatened, more pursued, more cursed by man than Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet, he held the course. He did not waver one inch from the course. Not one inch he deviated. As the hymn says now, it is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? The Lord Jesus Christ is our general. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that whom we have to follow. And if he has been pursued, why do we think as his people we will not be pursued? If he had hard, a hard, hard life with much persecution, why do we think, and we do think it for some reason, that our special case is different, that we will glide as on clouds through this life into eternal bliss? We can't be serious. When scripture again and again tells us that suffering and hardship and enmity are part of this life, but it doesn't stop here, that the victory is ours. It's right there. We just have to take it in Jesus Christ. We don't claim expensive cars and name and claim and all this nonsense of the uh, so-called uh, uh, welfare, health and wealth. Prosperity gospel, we claim victory. That's the thing that has been promised to us. It's right there. We have to go and take it. Not given even an inch, but be bold. In scripture it says, act like men. Not like babies. Not like flimmy flammies. Like men. Be warriors of Christ, your great general, who also already has guaranteed the victory. In a world that seems to have gone completely crazy and bonkers at this point. When even many Christians lose hope and cry the end is near. And yet, even in the midst of this chaos, 
Christ is building his kingdom and expanding his kingdom. In the midst of this mess, we are celebrating God's covenant faithfulness as we worship him together. A worship service is covenant renewal. And we're shouting it from the rooftops and from the pulpits. In the Lord, I take refuge. And beloved, may we leave footsteps for generations to come that they will find worthy to walk in. Because our help and our hope is not in man, is not in governments, is not in our own wit or in our good works, but our help and our hope is only in the name of Jehovah who made heaven and earth, who keeps truth forever, and he will never forsake the works of his own hands. And may we always know and never forget what it says in verse 7. That the Lord is righteous. That he loves righteous deeds. And that the upright shall behold his face. Oh beloved people of God. May we all behold his face. In all eternity through Jesus Christ. And may we run with endurance. In the race that has been set before us. Having our eyes fixed on Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. Oh, may have God mercy upon us. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to thee in the name, the powerful and victorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask thee, O living God, for forgiveness for where we have set idle, where we should have fought, where we were fearful instead of Bold, where we have retreated instead of attacked. We thank thee, O Lord, that in Jesus Christ all our sins are forgiven. And that in the Holy Spirit we will be changed more and more. O Holy Spirit, have mercy upon us. Give us the proper mindset. Give us brave hearts. And give us true biblical wisdom to fight the battle that is set before us. And we ask thee, triune God, protect our children. May they grow up to be mighty warriors who constantly bow their knees only before the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we also pray. Amen.